Hello and welcome to Fireside with a VC. My name is Andrew Romans and today we've got a different cool episode. It's actually a video and audio recording of the Venture Capital Insight panel at the 7BC event we hosted at Pillsbury's offices in New York City earlier this month. So we've actually got like a full stack of talking to seed funds about investing in pre-product, pre-revenue, how to set valuations, all those dynamics up to late stage expansion, growth capital, capital including secondaries and not getting growthered and all the dynamics of rights of first refusal and SPVs. So we're really kind of cradle to grave looking at the venture capital ecosystem with a deep dive on New York City. And we, the event was actually sold out. We had 120 people in attendance. Uh, more than 50% of them were VCs, corporate venture capitalists, family offices, angel investors, and LPs. And we're doing that same event next week on April 4th in Seattle. Got six VCs on that panel coming up. There's plenty of time for networking, the VC panel. A couple of our portfolio companies present, which I took out from this video just for compliance reasons. Um, and then we have like at least two hours of network, networking with an open bar, really great canopy hors d'oeuvres and food and free copies of my venture capital book. So join us, good to get out of the house and into real networking and listen to some real content. So enjoy the video. So my name is Andrew Romans. I'm a general partner of 7BC Venture Capital. It's great to be back in New York. Uh, Ron and I were saying all four of my grandparents are born in Brooklyn. So this is a baseline of culture. Um, but to, we're short on time, and I really love an event that's got some great content, but the biggest thing is the people that are at the event. I think this is almost an unusual group of more than half the people here are venture capitalists. We have family offices here. We've got LPs here. I've been meeting a bunch here this afternoon, and we've got some great founders and some important service providers that are the glue of the ecosystem. So um, I was actually working with one of our portfolio companies, NeonVest, which is really, really cool company. And I said, you know, you talk about CAC to LTV, like what's the cost of acquiring a customer and how much money are we going to get out and what's the payback? And I said, if you guys started doing events like the way I used to do events, you could have a, like a negative profitable CAC just by getting VCs and founders in the room together. So that was a bit of the inspiration. Also, I'm a Silicon Valley transplant to Austin and I walked into someone's dinner party and ran into Lakshmi where... Uh, she said, oh, we'll do it. We got a perfect office for this. And so this wouldn't have happened without her. So shout out to Lakshmi and uh, thank you so much. She's a Stanford, like all American tennis player, truly a history setting woman. So that's pretty cool. Also, Pillsbury, I've got a bit of history with this law firm. I started my first venture back company in the mid to late 90s. And uh, my, my law firm was Pillsbury Madison Sutro. PMS, great, great acronym, should never have changed it. But now it's just Pillsbury and great to be working with you guys. And so the, the agenda for the evening is um, we're going to thank a few people that have helped made the event possible. We're going to go through our VC panel, which is really cool because it covers all stages of venture. And then we're going to open it up to questions from you guys. One rule is if you pitch your company in a question somehow, you'll be asked to leave. So that's not acceptable. You can pitch your company. We're going to ideally have at least two hours of networking infused with drinks and food to enable you to pitch all you want at that point. And we've got three amazing portfolio companies that we're honored to be investors in that'll give kind of bullet presentations. And I always say, who cares about all the worthless VC roadkill? It's the actual operators that are the talent. So we're going to see the actual you know, 10 foot tall NBA players you know, telling us what they're working on. And then it's back to uh, networking. By the way, networking, I think, is just so important. I think if you're developing any single ecosystem like New York, it's super important. But it's also important to get people from outside to like get some fiber links into that. And one thing I, I really preach is that try to spend 30% of your time doing favors for other people that you get along with, asking for nothing in return. And your remaining 70% of your time would have a minimum 2x you know, more effective rate of getting stuff done and maybe even a 5X. So you're at 1.4 if you're only a 2Xer. And when you meet someone tonight, you're more engaged to listen to what they're doing and what they're working on and think, how can I help that person? Just makes for a way cooler 
networking and that's the magic dust that's like arrogant to call it Silicon Valley because that's everywhere now. But first, allow me to introduce Ron Fleming, not Ian Fleming, but Ron Fleming, who's a legend. And I like to joke that Ron is an investment banker masquerading as a lawyer because he's done so many deals, been through so many good and bad things that it's more than like, we're going to do your cap table for $2,000 an hour. So with that. That's fantastic. And Taylor will do your cap table for $2,000 an hour. Not me. Um, great to meet everybody. Um, I'll be very brief here. Uh, blessed to be part of this ecosystem. Um, I love telling people when I'm on my Zoom in my home office that you know people all assume this was all here. And I could assure you, and I, I've met some others that I first met 25 years ago in the room here on, on the panel here. 25 years ago, the entire ecosystem that we all love and take for granted could literally have fit in this corner. I mean, there were a handful of what they used to call computer law firms. It, it's kind of comical, um, but we are where we are um, and blessed to be part of it and to watch the biggest engine um, in New York City. The idea even now, just for fun that we're in New York City, that New York could be the second biggest ecosystem for technology in the universe and even, you know, by, I don't know if there's any Boston folks in the room, but bypass Boston. We might not be so good in sports down here, but we did bypass Boston and technology um, a long time ago. So we'll take what, what little wins we can get. Um, Pillsbury, kind of for fun. We incorporated Intel in 1968. Uh, we set up Klein of Perkins 1. And when I started as a lawyer here, uh, there was no such thing as NBCA forms. The, the, the two-volume treatise, which still gets published, by, written by a bunch of our partners, was the Bible for the industry. So kind of fun. We are where we are um, in New York City. Uh, Business Insider is one of our uh, claims to fame from being there from day one with Henry Blodgett and Kevin Ryan and others. Uh, MongoDB, uh, ironically, when that was first put together, thought it had to be bi-coastal just for optics because no one, everyone thought you couldn't start a software company, a real enterprise software company in New York City. Guess what? They were wrong. So here we all are. With that, thrilled to see the energy in the room. This is one of several events we've already had this year. We had 200 people here for the digital health thing a few weeks ago. Um, everyone's back, thrilled to be back. And um, I don't believe, don't believe any of the headlines. We have never been busier with real good. I, I, there's something called bad busy for those of us that were around in 2009 uh, uh, doing down rounds in 2003. Um, I will say, uh, and, um, and our team out here in the audience can confirm, happy and blessed to be doing good busy. So with that, here we go. Thank you. Okay, um, Bryce from Fidelity. Fidelity doesn't buy companies very often, but when they do. Thanks. So if I did this uh, six weeks ago, I would have introduced myself as Bryce El Grande, head of sales and go to market at Shoebox. But now I get to introduce myself to you all as the VP of sales at Fidelity for private markets. And so I'm excited to be here for several reasons. One, because yes, Boston is a better sports town, and I'm sorry. Uh, and two, because New York City and the ecosystem is thriving. And we're super excited as Shoebox and now Fidelity to be a part of that. Shoebox historically has supported companies, venture firms, limited partners with equity, cap table, reporting, and so on. And now as part of Fidelity, we're doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down, on that mission to be here within the private markets, within venture capital, through events, through our platform, through our team. And so couldn't be a better stage to say, hey, we're excited to keep growing this all with you. And would it be fair to say that you guys compete with Coda? That would be fair. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, monopolies are great if you're the owner of them, but, you know, it'd be nice to see Fidelity enter the game. So I think that's a great, it's really exciting to see you guys here. Um, okay, and um, Boris from Salsa Moby, are you here? Thanks. And, and we're thanking these guys. These guys are sponsors. And by the way, we're offered like, you know, we're an energy drink. We want to sponsor your event. We're like, no, no, no. It's got to be content that everybody cares about. Like there's a competitor to Carta and it's called Fidelity. So here's another cool one. Thank you, Andrew. I'm actually Boris from Austin as well. So great to be here. And I don't know if the mic is on, but... I got to speak a little closer. Yeah. All right. I haven't done these like Andrew has many times. Uh, I, I'm honored to be here. I have a network of senior software engineers all over Latin America. So we help startups and growing companies with great talent. I'm actually originally from Ukraine. I grew up in the US and I've been a CTO, VP of engineering at multiple companies. I've had kind of a technical background and I've built a great network of engineers that I'm now 
enjoying helping other companies um, in doing so. I am also an angel investor and I mentor at various accelerators around. So I love these events. I love the pitches and the ecosystem that uh, you guys are helping to make great, especially with your help. Thank you. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I meet a founder, either that we did not invest in that says, we're struggling to hire a CTO, we really need that, or our CTO quit. And so the idea that you can get one maybe in Latin America and then build out a whole team, you know, what they're getting paid in USD, that's amazing. And if they raise kids in Manhattan, that's going to be a tough one to, you know, balance your budget in a time of austerity. Um, so, hey, Akash, sorry, which one of you guys are going to represent Neon best quickly here? Appreciate it. And I know everyone wants to get to the panel, so I'll keep it brief. Uh, I'm the co-founder of Neonvest along with um, Surya over here. Where, uh, basically, founders use us for one primary use case, to supercharge their networks to VCs and founder operators. And the reason they do that is to really scale their network and get, ac get access to sort of mentorship and domain expertise via one-on-one -on -one 30 to 60-minute video chats. Andrew led our last round. Um, we raised seed last year. Um, it's been great journey so far and he's the one who actually introduced us to these sort of in-person events and how it can help scale our customer base so with that i mean we're rolling out a promo tool over the last um over the next two weeks so any founders that you guys know or anyone who wants to take advantage of this we have about 500 superchargers on the platform today and it's mainly for office hours type formats we have bessemer paypal ventures samsung catalyst fund on board so if you want to get access to these guys uh join neonvest thanks well, so I guess I am speaking my book if I say anything about Neon Best, but Brad Feltz is a friend of mine from Foundry Group. He also has written a bunch of books and he talks about the importance of having office hours. If you don't do that, you end up with, you know, a bunch of white guys from Boston that you went to business school with, and that's your only seven to seven Zoom schedule. Whereas he insisted on having office hours of two hours on Tuesdays and Thursdays, where anybody that can get to his office in Boulder can pitch him. And David Cohen kicked in his door and pitched him tech stars. And so that's an example of like, you know, serendipity happens when you open up your network a little bit. And so I think that NeonVest is kind of serving that function. And it feels good to mentor a founder quickly over Zoom and then see how they're doing in a year later. And, you know, it's kind of like a magical safe place for, as opposed to, look, man, I'm busy. I'm running out of time. I'm not going to invest in you. Here's like two bits of thoughts and get out of my way. And then they hate me and it's just bad. But okay, enough of that. So we're going to dive into the panel. And so think of some smart questions for us. But um, why don't you guys each introduce yourself? Andrea Lamari from MVP um, actually flew in from San Francisco. Don't let that Manhattan venture partners name fool you. Why don't you, get, you know, give yourself a quick introduction? And, and before we do, I mean, you'll see this in a second. We've really got the whole from early stage to like cradle to grave venture capital ecosystem in on this short panel. So it'll be a fun conversation. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Andrew, for having me and everyone. It's so awesome to be amongst uh, friends, colleagues. I've known uh, Lakshmi for years, uh, Bryce, the Shoebox team, big fan. Uh, so yeah, I'm Andrea. Uh, I actually did fly in from Puerto Rico this time, uh, but uh, I typically would be in San Francisco. Um, so I am a general partner at a late stage venture fund called Manhattan Venture Partners. We happen to be headquartered here in absolutely Manhattan, if you can catch the name. Um, we invest in companies once they hit a minimum of $100 million in revenue. Uh, so we are looking at companies that are at a growth trajectory, you know, single digit, you know, profitability at this point. Um, they're high flyer names that have top tier venture backing. Uh, what we like to say is our secondary business is primary and our primary business is secondary. 80% uh, of the time we're going in via secondary transactions uh, and then building up our position by way of a primary round of financing. Uh, we also wholly own a broker-dealer, so it allows us to act as traders as well as VCs, uh, which is pretty interesting. So it allows us to really get price discovery on late-stage venture names. Uh, prior to being one of the becoming one of the general partners on the firm, um, I was at Carta. I spearheaded the launch of Carta X. Prior to that, I was at the Nasdaq Stock Exchange, and before that, I uh, co-founded a company called Forge Global, which is a marketplace for private company stocks. So the world of like secondary transactions, definitely uh, in the DNA. Hey, I'm Wiz. I'm the co-founder and GP at a fund called Space Cadet. We are a $15 million pre-seed fund backed by some pretty stellar people like Mark Andreessen, Alexis Ohanian, uh, Bain Capital, and Google's fund Gradient Ventures. 
we call ourselves the marketing VC. We help our portfolio companies with marketing, specifically storytelling. We invest at the opposite end of the spectrum. So when companies have zero revenue and often just getting started um, and hope to see them along the way to more than $100 million in revenue. Um, but yeah, that's me and that's Space Cadet. Hey, there we go. Uh, you said stellar. I love that. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm a partner at Expanding Capital. We're a growth stage VC fund. We invest Series B to Series D. Our entry point is $5 million of ARR. We've invested up to $500 million of ARR. Some of our portfolio companies include Coinbase, ClassPass. We actually invested with Manhattan Ventures in Turo. Um, prior to venture capital, I've been a founder and operator. So I've only been at Expanding Capital for a year and a half. Uh, my first company was called Human. We built a conversational AI CRM, and we sold that company to Tinder in 2015. The last uh, four years, I've been building a, another conversational AI company in the customer service space called Snaps, and we got acquired by a larger player called Quick during COVID. And just as a fun one, when I was in college, I started one of the first digital native vertical brands called Soleil Bicycle. So I've been a founder in the D2C space, a founder in the consumer app space, built a B2B software company and now giving venture capital a shot. Good to be here with all of you today. Sorry, we don't have any energy drinks. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve Brotman. Uh, I run Alpha Partners. It's a growth uh, equity fund. Um, we actually sort of sit between Manhattan Venture Partners and the early stage VCs sort of between 10 million and 100 million in revenue. Um, our secret sauce is uh, that we partner with other VCs to generate our deal flow. So, and we share a part of our, what's known as carry or profits with those partner VCs. So uh, about 95% about of the time, it turns out VCs, once they do a seed round or an A round, won't do their B round, C round, D round, F round. And so we slot in and, um, and help those VCs out. Um, that being said, we work with 800 VCs. Um, so if you're an entrepreneur, our customers are early stage VCs. The odds that we're one degree of separation from an early stage VC are pretty high. Um, and we love sending business plans their way. So if there's a particular VC that you want to die to meet and you have the perfect plan just for them, that's a pretty high bar you know, uh, you can shoot me a note. Um, and uh, so excited to be here. Um, we're an investor um, are, are in a company called GoPuff. Might be familiar with that. Um, also, uh, SoCare. Um, uh, another company you might have heard of is uh, Roman Health and uh, 30 Madison, which has Keeps. Um, and uh, we're also, we also do a little bit of international investing. We're an investor in Coupang, the Amazon of South Korea, and Kareem, the Uber of the Middle East. So it's been a, been a fun run. And I've been in the industry um, uh, about 25 years, so I probably would have been in the corner over there. So um, uh, it's been a fun run, and uh, I'm glad to be here. That's great. And you're also an advisor to the Pritzker family group, aren't you? Yeah. No, so um, I had the good fortune of going to high school with J.B. Pritzker. And um, he was a few years older, and I was the ad director for a newspaper he founded as a student, like a student newspaper. That's how I got to know him. And uh, he funded me in my first startup getting out of school, and um, they recruited me to work with their venture fund. And um, so I work with their, uh, their, their venture team. But these mics need, can everybody hear me? Can okay. everybody hear each other here? Or we're good? Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, the Pritzkers, if you're, if you're not from here, are like the Rockefellers of Chicago. Is maybe, is that an accurate way of saying uh, it? Or, I, I would say they're probably, they're probably, uh, yeah, I would say definitely of Chicago, um, but they're probably one of the more well-known um, family offices involved in venture and private equity. Absolutely. So probably one of the more preeminent known folks. And they're, and they're really... You know, it's great uh, that they, they're one of the good guys. They, they got there through, you know, hard work and integrity and uh, backing good people. So it's, 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 it's been nice working with them for 30 years. That's awesome. So Andrew Roman, 7BC Venture Capital, we, um, 
we actually had um, my partner, Josh, where we co-founded Rubicon together, said that we were one of only 50 VCs in New York City um, at the time that we started in like 2011. And now there's got to be 300, 400. You know, you know, I remember flying over New York to go to Boston to get money. Like, you know, Boston was, Boston was number two after Silicon Valley. And then all the VCs showed up right before the dot-com bubble burst. So they all took their ties off and said, we're VCs. Here's my food table in Hell's Kitchen. And then it was like, when, when, when people were getting their MBAs in 2001, it was, you know what B2B stands for now? Back to banking. You know what B2C stands for? Back to consulting. So, you know, <laughs> no, more, no more Harvard going straight into startups and trying to get rich. Um, well, I think it is pretty wild that we have like the full spectrum continuum from, you know, pre-seed, pre-revenue all the way up to funky structure, late stage. Um, I, I had Andrea on my podcast the other day and, and just like a teaser of what's to come. She said, my future yacht, the name is going to be No Rofer. Um, you know, something like that. But Liz, since, since you're the earliest investor here, um, so you're investing heavily in New York City, but you're like across the country, aren't you? Yeah, so we invest uh, about 90% in the US, 10% internationally. Within the US, our three biggest cities are New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. I think New York probably top, not just because it's an amazing and growing ecosystem, but also because I'm here. Um, I'm going to be moving back to the Bay Area later this year. So expect to see the San Francisco numbers go up. Um, but yeah, mostly US. Yeah, that's cool. We were talking about that. Um, talk about uh, how are you valuing a startup right now? So if, you, if you're investing in a pre-revenue, pre-product, are you investing pre-product? Yeah. If you're investing pre-product, pre-revenue, how many employees are typically there when you're coming in? So at the pre-seed, the teams that we talk to are usually two to five people at the most. We do seed as well. Seed is usually two to maybe 10 people at the max. Um, we looked at the portfolio recently. Not a lot of difference in terms of progress. The seed investments have been just founders that are second-time founders and can jump straight to seed and raise more money. Or maybe they're a bit further along, but still not by much. Um, yeah, in terms of how we value these companies, much different than how the other folks on these panel value companies. At pre-seed and seed, there's really sort of like a standard range of valuations. And as long as the company is within, I don't know, a standard deviation or excuse for it to be outside of that, then it makes sense. At uh, pre-seed, we're seeing valuations anywhere from 5 million to 15 million at the top. Most of them are sort of like 8, 9, 10 is where most of them land, 10 million post. Um, and then at seed, it's anything like $9 million at the lowest to... I mean, if you'd asked me this last year, it would have been like 35 million. Uh, this year, maybe 25. That's crazy. So you were investing in 35 million. We did one $35 million you know what I company. Say? We do a little bit of seed on it. I try to keep it a secret. But when someone comes to me and says it's a 35 million pre on a pre-revenue company, I say, so we try to make a 50X on some of these things. Like I've had 54X, 80X, but we, we say it's got to be minimum 20X for seed and minimum 10X for a or B. And that's why we get pushed out of the season beyond. You realize that like, if it's 35 million pre, if you 10 X that that's 350 million expect minimum, you know, 20, you know, 50% dilution. So you got to be sold for more than ad mob. And you remember ad mob, you got, you got to get out for more than double click. It's like, sir, you are no double click. You know? So I find that shocking that they want 35 million. Yeah. 35 million is very wild. Um, I'm happy to report that the numbers have come down back to earth in the last couple of years. So today, seed deals that we see are on average 15 million, 16 million. Uh, the range there again is like nine to 20 million today. Pre-seed and seed companies, as long as they fall within that range and they're asking for an amount of money that equals reasonable dilution within those ranges and they can justify that amount of money. Some companies only need a million bucks. Some companies need $4 million. Usually the $4 million company will raise at the top end of that range. They're raising more money, but usually they have good reasons to do so. We're working on something really hard. We're working on hardware. We need more time. We need these really fancy engineers versus maybe a team in LATAM that pays, you know, three grand a month for engineers. All they need is a million bucks to get to the next stage. So yeah, within that valuation range, that's sort of how at the early stage we value them, which is probably hilarious to some of these other investors at the table. We'll probably, I'll probably bore the hell out of everyone if we talk too much portfolio construction, but I'm always obsessed with it. 
you know, kind of the earlier you invest, the more you need a wider set of companies to neutralize that risk of a singular investment. The more later stage you invest, the more concentrated you can be, and you want a big impact. And the VCs confused that they think they're adding value, and so they want to be all involved in these seven companies or so. How many companies have you got out of a fifteen million dollar fund? How many companies will there be in that entire vintage? Yeah, so we've got a bit of an outlier portfolio construction as well. We want to do 120 companies. 120 companies over 120, Over four years. Over four years? Yep. Okay. Okay, great. $100,000 tax, 120 companies. Okay. Look, I got a million more questions, but um, <laughs> let's move on to Jonathan. So Jonathan, you say you, you guys enter around C, D or B sometimes? Yeah, Series B, Series C, or Series D typically. And did you say... What was the revenue mark that gets you involved at that point? Yeah, five million of ARR recognized, meaning they've got the money in the bank. <laughs> right. We don't. We don't like. You know, we see lots of companies doing defense tech that have these really exciting government contracts that might be worth you know a hundred million dollar contract, but who really knows if those you know kind of unique helicopter autonomous drone platforms will actually be delivered and paid for? Right. Or GMV. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I don't care what the GMV is. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Just GMV pay for diapers and payroll? No. Uh, but so, so energy if, drinks, if, though. What's that? Energy drinks. Energy drinks, maybe, maybe. So if you've, if you've got uh, 5 million now, and, and by the way, we're in a seismic shift of the world, you know, after the invasion of Ukraine and the death of crypto or whatever, the stock market crashing. Um, how are you right now, as a rule of thumb, where the numbers are maybe driving the valuation a bit, what's the right amount of money a startup should be raising when they've got 5 million annual reoccurring ARR revenue? And what's the building blocks to get to a pre-money valuation? It's a great question. Yeah, it, the, this is a, a cop-out, but the answer is it depends, right? It depends on what kind of company you're building. You know, a B2B SaaS company hypothetically should be you know, operating with higher margins. They should be able to have lower burn. We typically not to invest in many companies doing, you know, hardware or infrastructure. We've invested in a few companies like that. And, you know, the, the jury is still out on how those companies end up doing versus some of the other, you know, consumer tech companies that we've invested in. Um, you know, there's some things that we're, you know, keeping a close eye on right now. Obviously, we're debating the, the differences between growth and profitability. We're looking at, uh, you know, different things like, uh, you know, gross margin. We're also spending a lot of time thinking through NRR. Does everyone know what NRR is? I it's, don't. It's net retention revenue. So it's basically uh, new sales minus churn plus upsells. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at that stage, we really, really look for empirical evidence of product market fit. And so if you have a number like 120% NRR, it means that you have the ability to upsell your customers and there's likely less churn happening in your business. A number like 130 or 140 or 170% NRR, this means you have a really sticky product, your churn is very low, and your team is actually able to upsell. So you have likely a number of new products being offered. Uh, one company that we invested in has an NRR of 282%. It's the highest I've ever seen. And it's a really sticky kind of NRR. So um, certain businesses that we've been staying away from right now, so. If, if you think about NRR, there's certain companies that are built off of headcount-based NRR. This is like software like LinkedIn, right? So they sell seats. And unfortunately, there's a lot of layoffs that are happening. And so we expect to see some churn. It'll be really hard for businesses like LinkedIn, we think, to upsell right now. So we're staying away from those kinds of businesses. There's NRR that's based on uh, volume. This is like Stripe, Shopify. That's pretty sticky NRR. And then there's NRR like Twilio, which is basically volume-based. They make money every time you send a text, that, that business takes a percentage. So the business that I'm referring to, they charge per text sent in and out, and they also make a percentage of every transaction that takes place. So we're looking for really sticky products, really great NRR, and then obviously all the other uh, aspects of, of profitability. So, so not all revenue is created equal. Not all revenue is created equal. Yeah, yeah. We 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 make sure we understand what the revenue is. Um, Stephen, you you've been um around for so long. I can hardly believe that all you do is rely on GPs like me to send you our deal flow that we're out of no, cash for. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> what 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 percentage of your investments are just going direct? Because everybody knows you. I mean, 
Not, not that many, actually. I really do. I think it's 95% come from VCs. Okay. So like, you know, if I'm, that's occasionally we'll get direct stuff, but it's, 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 it's highly, highly unusual. And, and even then, um, I'm still relying little, with a little help from my friends. So, um, you know, for information and, and, um, access. So yeah, it's a unique model. Instead of, I decided instead of competing with everyone, we would just work with everyone. So, you know, you know listen, man, I believe in not? it. My strategy to uh, make more money and work fewer hours and spend more time at home and not travel as much is do like 15% fund of funds and then cherry pick co-investing with these people and then getting that information, you know, that, that information is just so key. We're similar, except we don't have a fund of funds. So we yeah, I know do, you figured out a way to we do it at scale. So we'll invest five or ten million dollars in one deal, and that VC, you know, can can do pretty well. So, and also <laughs> what we do is we help that VC find um, uh, new investors at the at at that stage too. So we're pretty connected in that community. You know, one of the benefits of of being old. You just know everyone, so yeah, and they maybe trust you a little bit. You've <laughs> behaved well for that long. Yeah, he's not dead yet. Yeah, well, and just make sure everybody understands. I think this is a fascinating model. Is that like guys like me raise a fund one? Oh, that was easy. Then you got to raise a fund two. Oh, that was a little bit easier. Actually, being truthful, and then fund three, you're getting the friends of the friends of your friends to begin with, and you're still in the game. And then you're getting into fund four, and you're trying to get to at some point an opportunity fund that we've got like. Nothing like you, but we have like 75 living startups. So if I invested in Neonvest at the early stage, and now you know we've introduced them to Jonathan and all these other great people, and they're raising like 100 on 900 million pre or something, that's not going to give the multiple that my LPs expect. But damn it, if I'm not going to be able to participate in it. And so being able to go to Steve over here and say, hey, I realized that I'm one of your 900 VC friends. He's lying. He's got more than that. Like, you know, I'm, I'm telling you, it's actually true that if he can put the capital in and I get a little scratch of the carry, that's definitely a good thing. And it's getting closer to exit. It's not a bad business. So that's the way it works, right? I hope you get a big scratch. So it's, it's, uh, we share up to half our carry. Share up to half the carry. So 20% of the profit on that late stage, if it's a big check, you know, 20% of it might be something. And it's like two to four X, probably. Something around that one to three years. On a ten million deal, that's that could be a million bucks, two million. Yeah, for you. Yeah, life's so expensive, worth, man. Inflation's it's been a, hard. It's worth a five minute call. Right. So, yeah. Hey, Steve. It's my, also my best, my best company, my favorite people, and what's fun for me is I get to 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 work with the best people in the industry. Who really, you know, they're they're blowing it out. I, I spent fifteen years as an early stage VC. It's a tough job. You spend about 80% of your time, you're burying companies. Now, the last couple of years, it's, it's been pretty slow, but you're an underkeeper as a VC. People think, oh, it's all glorious. But if you even like, you look at like uh, the Midas list, they'll have like one company that they're known for. And the, you know, the 30 or 40 other companies they work with, dust. And, you know, so, so be kind to your VCs because they spend most of their time, you know, digging ditches. I know it sounds weird, but, you know, that's true. I sent my first deal to Julian this week, actually. Yeah. There you go. So, Andrea, uh, let's talk about the change in the marketplace. So you're playing at, and by the way, the fact that you were a founder and creator of this industry, I think is so wonderful that you're, you're the one landing with the GP. You were that you were early days too. We were very we were doing a founders club when their secondaries were very rare. Yeah. So we figured out how to do secondaries, you know, legally uh without, without that. And then I, I did get into secondary. So when we lost Daniel Elk from Spotify, mm-hmm. um, he told North Zone Grand he's doing 20 million into the Founders Club. So he's gonna exchange equity for LP ownership and 25 companies coming together that had Pandora, Last FM in the same equity exchange fund, Northstone said, give us a couple of weeks and we'll spin up an SPV and we'll buy the 20 million for cash. We want to, we want more. We'll go back to her if we have to, to get more of this asset. Um, so that was that, but talk about, talk about some of the dynamics of the shift in the market, right? So a bunch of our portfolio companies were early kind of whiz stage space cadet. And then they raised hundred million, 150, 130 
in the peak of the summer of 2021 in the spring, and they got those deals done. What does that look like on secondaries right now? And who's selling? And who are you buying from? Oh, can I first say this? What's the difference between a primary and a secondary? I'm not sure everybody in the room knows the difference. Sure, sure. So a primary is a primary issuance of stock. So that is the stock the company's issuing to investors when they invest in a new round of funding. So that's the Series A, B, C, D, F, G, right? That's the primary. The secondary is the stock that was already issued. So it's the stock that was issued to those investors or was issued to employees. And now it's being, you know, it's exchanging hands uh, between new investors. So it wasn't issued by the company. It was already issued to someone else and now it's exchanging hands. Um, overall, yeah, it's uh, it's brutal out there, guys. Um, I will say, you know, I no longer have to race to invest in a company that's uh, trading at a hundred times NTM, <laughs> even in the late stage. So, you know, even in late stage companies, we were seeing companies that were priced at 40, 50, 60 times next 12 month revenue, um, still at like a negative 30% EBITDA margin and telling me they were going to go public in 12 or 18 months. And it was a battle to get into those companies. Um, nowadays it's completely changed. Uh, you know, when, when did the market correct in your mind? I will say when I started getting worried about it was uh, Q1 last year when all of the crossover hedge funds called me and said, we're about to get margin called and we have to drop everything. And I was like, really, you guys like you, you need to sell now. Like that, that was when I started seeing the market shift. Um, but overall, I would say like, you know, when I started seeing a dip in just generally valuations in the secondary market and then companies kind of playing the long tail for valuation was definitely Q4 21 was when it, I, I really saw it, but Q1 2022 is when, when the hedge funds started backing off. So but I would agree with that. I would say that spring of 2021 in the summer yeah. was like the peak, the peak, the peak, like this makes no sense. Like mm -hmm. if the company makes 1 million a year and I pay 47 million for it, forgetting discounting cash flows, I got to work, own it for 47 years to get my money back. That just sounds bad, right? Not to mention interest rates are going up. So you should discount year 47's yep. 1 million payout. But I think it was like by August, people said, I'm not doing this anymore on the investing side. And then mm -hmm. by October, deals were getting done yeah. at a much more sane, let's say multiple, like Jonathan's talking about, of you know getting, getting back to 10X. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. And I would say just generally right now, you know, there's, there, you know, I, I always like to be very optimistic in this sense. I mean, this is why, you know, in VC, like, yeah, you're definitely, you're burying, but luckily in the late stage, you know, there's some level of, of de-risking, at least you expect and hope uh, that they're, you know, almost too big to that extent where, okay, they, they could prove their model. They could pull levers on profitability and revenue to really achieve the outcomes they need. Um, overall, I will say the companies that are strong companies will always be strong companies. The operators that are strong operators will always be strong operators. I will say, you know, a company that you and I should talk about has a, a NRR of 400%. So like there's definitely strong companies out there that I'm like in any environment, they're going to thrive. And so I think that focus on the executive team, their ability to recruit, retain talent to me is extra key, especially in like a, a world of uh, being distributed for the employee base. Um, overall though, like the best companies that raise money in 21, they're telling me that they, you know, they obviously reduced burn, uh, they, they cut costs, they're cutting sales and marketing across the board. That's important. We need to see that there's, like I said earlier, like single digit profitability, like above the line going into whenever their IPO is going to be right. And so I would say the companies that I am paying extra close attention to in my portfolio are the ones who were expecting to go public this year. And now they're not, and they're thinking about what they're going to do next and what level of a balance sheet they're going to have going into the next 12 months while we wait to see the IPO window potentially open back up. I mean, this is what I call the tale of two cities, that for some startups, this is a really rough, rough thing, like seats are being reduced. So you're not landing and expanding with existing logos. You're trying to reduce spend to get the new logos. You're used to delivering 4X growth or 2X growth and you're trying to get to profitability and you're finding out that you've got negative unit economics, that's like the tale of two cities you don't want to be in. And then there's these other companies that their software does the job of a human perfectly and better. And it's like people can't afford not to use that technology with their austerity needs. So that's like, there's always going to be a funder in any post.com 2008, 2009 you know, environment.
But talk a bit about, and, and everybody jump in on this because I mean, you guys are all in the same in the same business, but I want to talk about the bid ask difference between issuer slash seller of the secondary stock. Like we, we, we really were counting on some exits and then 2001 got so frothy that people threw money at them. Founders took big secondaries. I'm like, damn it, they're never going to sell. And then, so, we, so our exits got pushed back by that. We should have been doing secondaries at the peak more than we did. And then all of a sudden, you know, stock market crash, invasion of Ukraine, crypto's gone. Um, uh, there, no one's going to IPO at that. No one wants to emanate at those new multiples. So the exits are yet for, further elusive. Does that mean people want more of doing business on secondaries or they just cannot bring themselves into the bid-ask zone? I would say, I mean, secondary right now is such an interesting entry point uh, in venture. I mean, of course, you know, if you're going to think about secondary, you have to think about your portfolio composition because you either have to register as an IRA if you're going to trigger the 20% rule. So there's there's considerations for doing secondary, but always happy to chat about it. Um, overall, you can get amazing companies at a discount right now. So like if you were hyped on Databricks, yeah, I mean, now that that looks a little bit more affordable, right? So Overall, um, it is a great way to get a piece of, of the pie of a company that otherwise might have seemed too attainable, too expensive. I mean, 60 or 70% off right now is not out of the question for some of the best companies I've ever seen, um, which is super, super interesting. But overall, you know, I will tell you like where it got really frothy was back in 2020, 2021, where I was seeing companies close a new round of funding. So they closed a primary, like the best companies. And then immediately in the secondary market, their common stock was pricing at like a 10 or 20% premium from the round that just closed like weeks prior. And that to me was just like the ultimate top of the market for the secondary market. I, you, you just would never see that otherwise. So, uh, you know, prior to 2021, we had never done a secondary investment. And I'll tell you what kind of kicked off our journey looking at that. So, you know, basically towards the end of uh, 2020, 2021, we really slowed down our investment, um, partially because we weren't seeing many companies. We thought things were really expensive. But then all of a sudden, deals got really quiet. And so we just asked some first principle questions like, why are we not seeing many great companies go raise? What should a fair valuation be? And we weren't really getting answers in a primary round of investing where these are the kind of investments you might read like in TechCrunch, you know, XYZ company raises so much money. So what I started to do was actually build out relationships with brokers. There's a whole other world of investments that are in, in the secondary world. So there's secondary funds, there's secondary brokers, and, you know, there's early funds that maybe want to sell some of their position or founders or employees that maybe thought they were going to go public. And now obviously that window is closed, but maybe those particular employees want to buy a home or have large bills or have to pay for college. They need some capital. So we just started tracking basically uh, of March of 2022, basically about 50 different companies. And over a three month period, we saw the ask price drop on a median of about 15%. And now today, if we look at that data, it's probably about 50% on a decline. And so if you're interested um, and buying great companies, you can get a likely a, a pretty good price today. Um, one of the things that we're seeing right now is funds that might have been invested in a seed round or a Series A round of a great iconic business. They might have been invested in that company from about eight years ago or nine years ago, maybe longer. They need to pay back their investors, their limited partners. And so that fund might be willing to sell a portion of that stake get some cash, pay back their investors. And we say, hey, we, we just bought this company at 60 or 70% from its last round. And we think this business could still 3X or 4X. We might not be right there. We might be, but uh, we still think there's some good upside. So hopefully it's a win-win situation uh, in those cases. That's great for guys like me and Wiz. If we were in that at 4 million or 8 million or 12, even though it took a haircut from 2.5 billion down to 1 billion, you know, we're still at 1 billion. Back in the 90s when we were doing deals, one bill, 300 million was considered a win in, on the NASDAQ. Zappos got sold. No one could believe a startup got sold for a billion. Yeah. Forget that. It was 2009. Yeah, it's it, was, a bit, it was a big deal when Zappos got sold. Yeah, rest in peace, that guy. Um, so, Steve, um, I was going to say, talk about um, how long would due diligence last before the crash and what does due diligence look like now in your experience? You know, 
You know what I'm talking about, right? Due diligence. Wait. If you're going to do that, the way yeah, I can talk to my line. <laughs> you know, uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I think due diligence. Well, for what stage? So that's well, that's important. Yeah, it's, it's so a good like, question. But I also, like, I like everybody to weigh in. It's it sort of interesting. Does, it does depend on the on the stage. So, like, what is what is you do diligence for two people in a room with a paper napkin? What's the diligence line for that? You know, it's just, uh, you know, make sure that they're not criminals. <laughs> no. Okay, check. ISIS check, Al-Qaeda check. We, we don't do that. Okay, see, so there you go. <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's, expensive. that's a better. So you should probably just go down the line. Like, you know, like how much due diligence do you, do you, you know? But um, no, I mean, back in my day, um, we there was there was probably a couple months of diligence um sort of pre you know pre 2008 um and i'd say today you know i'd say pre pre uh regime change you know if you got like a week or two i'd be pretty pretty surprised uh, although some of the bigger firms were spending you know a decent amount of time um it it varied depending by partner and um you know so so that's uh uh, you know, that's, it was highly, highly dependent on the firm and the sector, um, and the stage. So not to cop out, um, today though, you know, I, I get the sense that people are, are, it's going back to normal, um, a month or two of diligence kicking the tires, especially at the growth stage. Um, two thirds of all growth stage investors, she mentioned the hedge funds, not answering her call. Well, they, no, they were the ones calling us. That was just scary. Yeah, the crossover yeah. guys yeah. were trying to cross back where they belong. Yeah, right. So, so about you know what what people don't quite realize is that there's the venture industry, and then there's the tourists. Those are the folks who come in and out of the out of the market, and so uh, a huge number of hedge funds were sort of crossing over and um, sort of arbitraging the private market to the public market. Um, uh, further mutual, even mutual funds were getting into this, um, sort of the T row prices of the world. Yeah. They'd say, Hey, we have a trillion dollars. Why don't we put, you know, a hundred million in the, we have, we're going to have to buy at the IPO anyways, and we're not going to get an allocation and the stock's going to go to the moon. So let's take a position and say, you know, LinkedIn before it goes public. I remember Carl Icahn in Fidelity invested in Lyft. Lyft went out for 300 and came back with 650. Right. And I met a guy who worked for Carl Icahn and then he said they did a hundred billion into that round and made some since, is that a hundred million? Oh yeah, sorry, a hundred million, but they made a sensational exit on just that with Lyft. Yeah. So, yeah, like, so there, they're going to go back of, to that bar again. There is, right. There's a lot of, there is uh, a, a lot of that. So. Andrew, we're going to weigh in on, on the uh, change of, of how long it takes to get a deal done. Well, I was going to say, first of all, actually, I just want to give props to Alpha Partners and Steve because we've also partnered with with him. So yeah. co-investors, two co-investors here, which is awesome. Um, but uh, well, I was in due diligence right now, like we're spending real, real time. I mean, it is it is significant. I mean, we're call, we're doing the reference checks and we're, you know, we're doing customer reviews. I will say I bring in lawyers to review the MSAs and SOWs now of the of the companies. Um, and I will tell you, it is alarming how many blockchain companies have terrible MSAs. So just FYI, like lack of governance. Yeah. I mean, it's just terrifying. So uh, just overall, like even in the secondary market, historically, it's been known that you have to uh, kind of rely on a lot of public company or I'm sorry, uh, public comp data or just very little information because companies don't always open their kimono as much to secondary as they historically did primary. Where we sit is that because we have a venture fund, we have, we've raised four funds, we have almost $2 billion under management. Like we're underwriting the deal. And then we're giving those financial models to our LPs. And we're saying, this is where we price it. This is our base bill and bear case. And if they're, we're then kind of wearing our like broker hat under our broker dealer, we're, we're being very transparent and saying, here's how we'd underwrite this deal. So we're doing that for every single opportunity. So you can understand like principally where we price things relative to where we think the market is. And I think that that like level of visibility is something that you haven't always been able to have in the late stage. All right, so I'm almost ready to stop moderating and let you guys ask questions. But Andrew, explain what a rofer is, and uh, since that's the name of your future yacht, and um, do people stop roofing you? No lately? rofer. No rofer. Uh, well, no rofer. 
no rofer. Uh, yeah, this is amazing. Uh, no, ro- so a right of first refusal is uh, a provision in uh, shareholder agreements bylaws of startup companies. The right of first refusal is is this provision, a contractual provision that when a co- when you want to exchange your shares, you want to sell your shares of a private company. Private companies remain private because they want to select who their investors are and they want to uh, they want to manage the cap table, they want to manage that pricing of the company. That's why you're private. So the right of first refusal typically pr- protects the issuer and says, "Hey, if you're going to sell your stock before we go public, uh, we as the issuer reserve the right typically to buy it back from you first. And if not, we're going to take it to a subset of other investors, typically the board, uh, if not some other major investors, and then they can buy the shares back first as well, or they buy the shares from you. So it's this uh, really fun thing I get to navigate every single day, which is, are we going to get Roford? Because we're usually that new capital coming in and we have to you know, obviously navigate that and say, is it likely that if we're going to you know, tie up our capital and invest in this deal, are we going to be, you know, blocked at the Rofer stage? And quite frankly, if I do get Roford, it's a really good sign. Typically, that means someone wants that stock so much more than I do, and I'll just have to try again later. That's why I always worried <laughs> if you didn't get Roford, you overpaid, or you better have some conviction because you got through every single major investor, chose not to exercise a right of first refusal, and the treasury of the company chose not to refer you. But in, in a world where they can spin up the SPVs in 45 days, Some, sometimes the the existing investors just are they're, they're you know fully allocated. They're just like we have enough exposure, we're done. You know, time to do an SPV with your LPs then. Yeah, they might. Yeah. But, yeah. But that's a pain, and not everybody. It used to be that every VC was too lazy to do it; they didn't even care. I usually have to call the board, and I'm like, please don't roll for me. Like, I'll. Yeah, and also, you have the ability to do a primary, so you can say like, roll for me, and you don't expect us to do what we can do for the primary round. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's rough muscles to not get roofed. I think that's interesting. Um, okay, so uh, uh, if anyone asks a question, our one request is that if you pitch your company, you'll be asked to leave right away. You can pitch your company later. And um, we don't have a mic runner, so I'll repeat your question, and then these guys will answer it. 